Welcome to the We Find Women podcast, a living playbook for gender lens investing across Africa. We capture the stories of women-led startups and those that are backing them. In today's episode, we have Nelen Kolise, the founder and CEO of 3Demo. With an impressive bio, including being named one of the winners at the SAP Innovation Awards, gaining recognition as Africa's top female innovator at the World Economic Forum on Africa, as well as being listed as one of the honoraries and the Forbes 30 under 30, um, we are super, super excited to be delving deep into a journey in founding and scaling a venture-backed startup in Africa. Welcome, Nailer. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks, Hope. And how about you? I'm super excited to be having this conversation with you. I think, you know, I've been following the 3 demo story for a while um, and, you know, had to LinkedIn stalk you so that we can just have this conversation. <laughs> so I'm super, super happy that we can finally have this conversation and obviously allow other people to kind of gain insight from your journey as well. And a relevant place to start, right? So when I read your name and just thinking about what you do today, I thought it was so profound. Um, can you tell us what your name means? What does Nele mean? And why were you named that if there's a specific reason to it? Okay, so Nele is a certain name. It means gave. Um, and how I got the name was that uh, back when my mom was at Varsity, she went to National University of Lesotho. Um, there was a lady there called uh, uh, Nele. Um, she became the first um, advocate, first female advocate in Lesotho. So my mom um, thought, okay, let me give my let me give my child um, the name. Uh, because yeah. probably she might become an advocate or something, or she <laughs> might be the first black woman. You never know. But um, I, I mean, I, I, I understand the meaning of the name. I've had the opportunity of also meeting um, advocate um, Nele. And yeah. Um, you know, when you are given the name of someone who has had so much impact um, in society, particularly in the Sotho, you start understanding that there is so much meaning to the name. Um, yeah. you, need to, uh, you need to handle the name with care. Um, yeah. And that's how I've been. I think I've been doing a good job with Nele. You have been doing an exceptional <laughs> job, right? Uh, and I think key to just even speaking about some of the things that you've been able to accomplish, um, you gave of yourself and your talents in order to create innovative products, right? That you put out and, and all of the products have this, this sort of social impact and, and um, making a meaningful uh, change in people's lives. So I definitely think it's fitting and that's why I just wanted to get your perspective if you see it as well. Um, and you know, you hail from the Free State region. I'm in a small town called Tabanchu. Hope I'm saying it correctly. Yes. I think my CPU is a little bit <laughs> off as well. Um, but could you describe like what your childhood was like and, and looking back, right? What were the key elements and how you were brought up that have contributed to who you are today? My childhood, I was raised by a very strict mother, you know. Um, <laughs> this is what happens. African yeah. mothers are very strict. Uh, I know. <laughs> uh, but then, um, you know, I, I had um, a normal childhood, uh, but I was quite a happy child. I was raised by a single mother, but who made sure that I get almost a lot of the things that I had wanted. Um, 
she growing up she was always the one person who was always she was very forceful about us reading um i still remember that every single night back when we were kids we we had to uh before we sleep we had to bring a book uh and just <laughs> lay just next to her on the bed yeah. and read her a story um and she'd have a stick on the side uh whenever <laughs> we'd make a mistake uh i mean before we know it we literally you are being beaten up um and yeah. um i still remember i used to struggle with the most important word um that i i, I couldn't say woman right i used yeah. to say woman is human uh so whenever i would get <laughs> to the word woman I would always be freaking out saying <laughs> <laughs> and she beat me up because she was saying the most important word uh, that you are going to carry for the rest of your life you can't pronounce it you can literally pronounce all the other words you can't read the most important word uh, but you know um I mean growing up has just been a bliss you know I look back at my childhood and um I I I, I look at it with pride because um, I did so many things that every child had to do. I took part in drama. I took part in art uh, because yeah. the nicest thing about Tabanchu is that um, if you look back um, at the history of Putazwana, you know, uh, yeah. um, there used to be this cultural institutions called Mabana. So you'd find Mabana Tabanchu, Mabana Mafikeng, Mabana Lihuruti, I don't know, I think there was also a Mabana in Rustenburg. And um, you look at how um, that um, organization has been able to be the birth of a lot of talent in South Africa. Uh, people yeah. like Bonam Mateba came from Mabana, people like Yotebe, um, a lot yeah. of musicians, Stone comes from Mabana. Yeah. And I'm also yeah. a product of Mabana in Tabanchu too, because we used to do sports, we used to do art, we used to do wow. drama. And I was more um, in love with art, um, a lot more because I was surrounded by people who allowed me to express myself through color, through drawing. And yeah. it used to be where I, I spent a lot of my time outside school. Yeah. And obviously that also informs sort of how you start forming your own ideas about the world, right? Because I think that's the powerful thing about art is that it allows you to kind of express yourself in, in, in different ways, but then also take in a lot of components of the way the world works in your own unique ways. Um, so that's that's super powerful and you're right. I think Casper, your best as well, right? Is from some of those regions. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely been a lot of a lot of exceptional talent that comes from there. So, you know, if you have this very deep um interest in the in the arts, um and 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 sort of because of you know your upbringing has been has made you surrounded by sort of those influences, why study mechanical engineering in, in varsity? And, you know, and I think another thing I'd like you to touch on is what is your experience in terms of being a woman in the sector, right, where it's it's very heavily male dominated. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of experienced your university years from that lens? Okay, so the um, thing is, funny enough, um, studying the science field, the STEM field was my mother's choice. Um, I had wanted to um, travel all over Africa and write 
stories um, after high school because I felt um, at some point in my life I want to work at United Nations uh, yeah. but I was convinced I needed to be in the science um, science space um, so funny enough after I finished high school I went to study physics at VETS um, spent two years and I discovered this world of brand uh, management through the creative okay. council um, and somehow I, I I was trying to tell my mother that you know what I found this cool place where you can use art um, tell stories through branding because it was like back in 2007 and at yeah. the time um, there, there hadn't been this hype on storytelling as a way of marketing or selling products a lot of times it was when I went to the creative council I saw a lot of you know beautiful girls models and um, I, I just had to create a way on how can we start talking to a customer by telling them a story that resonates with them so yeah. at that time, I just felt that, no, you know what? I don't think I should be doing physics anymore. Um, with the following year, I'm not going back to varsity. I think I need to um, take up this opportunity in um, brand, um, into doing product branding, um, product design. Yeah. But then my mother was on some, no, <laughs> no child. <laughs> no. No child of mine is going to be leaving <laughs> university. I think you need to leave that and come to the free state where I can monitor you. So she made me <laughs> she yeah. made me get um, um, into a university of technology CUT and study mechanical engineering. Um, it was a choice, but then um, the nicest thing about CUT was that it was also a great. Um, in the mechanical department, it had a great design school. Um, so yeah. I, I got to fall in love with more of product design from a technical perspective, uh, yes. building products. Yes. And, you know, um, that became uh, my passion from then on. And yeah, yeah and thing about engineering is that, you know, it's it's so male-dominated, it's not even funny, but I also believe that this is a, this a, a big place for women within mechanical engineering, because I still remember uh, when I was doing undergrad, there were very few girls within my class, and uh, one of the things I figured out I could do that a lot of the guys could not do was that I, a lot of times I used to be the one who used to be the one designing products, um, yeah. building ideas, building stories around uh, the products, also building stories around how we can solve, how we can solve a customer problem. So that became um, the one thing that a lot of people entrusted me, the guys entrusted me with, because they thought that, um, I mean, you bring a lot of the empathy map that we don't yes. quite understand, because with us, yes. you just know the technical parts are uh, you bring that empathy map so that's when I started discovering like this a whole new journey on design thinking um, yeah. in building products that I mean I was good at and a lot of guys yeah. weren't good at 
Yeah, wow. I think that's a very profound point, right, in terms of sort of how you leveraged a lot of these traits that people somewhat associate with women, right, as a woman's natural strength, and how that became sort of a unique differentiator in this very heavily male-dominated industry. But then combining that with the love for the arts, I think all of it came together to create this 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 super skill that you developed over the years and i think obviously you you worked in industry for some time but then you decided that the best way for the skill to manifest is in entrepreneurship right and starting your own business and i'm quite interested because you know a lot of people um know that the entrepreneurship journey is hard there's a lot of challenges um so why did you pick this route and not decide to kind of drive impact elsewhere Okay, so I was an, <laughs> I became an accidental entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, thanks, and thanks to SAB Foundation, because um, in 2015, I was still doing my master's in mechanical engineering, uh, working in the applications of additive manufacturing to do facial prosthetics, like your okay. ears and noses for people who have lost them due to diseases such as cancer or accidents. Um, so I still remember there was a time when we did um, some experimental work at a hospital in the free state. And um, the place where we are doing the work was um, at a cancer ward. Um, so I, I saw a lot of women coming up and down. Um, and I mean, I asked uh, one of my supervisor, you know, the women what's wrong with them and he told me that a lot of the women there have breast cancer so for me yeah. as a woman I then asked him like jokingly uh, in passing would it be possible for us to build these products that we are doing for ears and noses um, can we also use the same processes to create breasts yeah and he said yeah um it could work out uh but yeah it it would require a lot of material but for me, I then thought at that moment that I needed to start doing breasts because I was realizing that in as much as you are doing noses and ears, but there's a huge um, opportunity for us to do breasts. And yeah. I thought that it was also something that um, a lot of people within the, in my field, because it's male dominated food when focusing on. And yes, as a woman, yes. I, I had to start saying, you know, when you are a woman within the tech space, the opportunity is that because you understand the challenges that women have, it's yes. easier for you to start building products for women. Yes. So yes. I then, um, I then um, took this journey into um, saying, okay, let me start uh, building products for women, breast prosthetics. And it was around that time when SAB Foundation came in um, and then they said, um, I won an award at the SAB Innovation Awards back in 2015. And they gave, yes. us, gave me some grant funding and paired me with a mentor who literally pushed me um, to get into, into my entrepreneurial journey. And yeah, from 2016, wow. I was wow. just fully immersed into entrepreneurship. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that mentor? Um, sort of, you know, what are the key things that they did that empowered you 
um, to kind of, you know, make the jump and obviously to start really navigating your own identity as an entrepreneur, given that it's something that obviously it's not that you had planned to go into. Um, so, so having, you know, sort of that support system in the form of a mentor in this case was uh, helpful in making that transition easier. But what did that mentor get right in making that process easier for you? Okay, so the um, thing is, Risnam um, also had um, a company. Um, she made flowers, uh, roses for you um, in okay. the first date. So every single time, whenever we'd have our meetings, she'd always say, let's have our meetings uh, at her factory, um, which was just um, outside the Bluefontaine city. Um, okay. And just seeing someone who... Um, running a business, um, hiring people and making so much impact in the people's lives that work for her. Um, the risks that she has taken, I had to see firsthand uh, what it means to run a business as a woman. Um, yeah. So having to go through that experience that, um, I then realized that there's so much opportunity in getting into entrepreneurship. And I mean, yeah. Riz, Rizna was, you know, she was hardcore, you know. Um, she would sometimes <laughs> shout at me saying, you know, you're wasting time trying to figure out what you need to do. You need to do this. I mean, you need to get into this place. This is what you need to do. And, you know, just getting someone who pushed me because at the yeah. time I was quite scared um, and yeah. I was quite comfortable in being in the space of academia where, um, because thing about academia, you are given this um space for you to test fail as many times as possible and you don't care about who pays for the lights you don't care about who pays for the yeah. internet <laughs> so <laughs> you even get project funding so I mean you can run out of project funding you still get more project funding um so <laughs> she used to she, she used to always be on my case to say that you are sitting too comfortable because you have carried on the lessons you learned from academia where that teaches you to be comfortable um yeah. you need to start thinking like a um an entrepreneur a startup founder because with this, as a startup founder you don't have the luxury of um spending a year doing research you need to be building, um, you need to show customers yeah. something. So I, yeah. I mean, at some point I used to be mad at her because I thought that she was unfair, but looking yeah. back at um, the relationship I had with her is the most meaningful uh, mentor-mentee relationship I'll always cherish all my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm interested in your perspectives. So, you know, there's one part of the ecosystem that really believes that women are a lot more risk averse, right? And essentially the one side of seeing more examples of other women, but then the other side of also providing them with the support system so that they can make that leap to entrepreneurship will go a long way in making sure that we see an increase in numbers. And then on the other side of it, there's the perspective that women are often over-mentored and underfunded. Um, what would your perspective be on at scale or how can we encourage more women to really just enter into the startup space? I think we need to take um, huge bets on women 
Um, I think with yeah. me, what got me to where I am is that I've had so many people taking huge bets on me and yeah. also understanding that I'm going to fail as many times as possible. And it's part of the journey. I mean, I need to pay school fees at some point. Yes, but yes. I feel that the one thing that men are given that women aren't given, men are given resources and funding and little yes. training. So it's more of um, they learn in doing, but for women, we always yes. take into a lot of um, programs, um, yes. mentorships and everything before we are given the opportunity to do something. You know, I truly believe that uh, when we start giving, taking, uh, taking a huge bet on someone, they will learn in the process. You know, in the first, in the early early stages they might uh mess around with money they might do um <laughs> they might do risky decisions but yes. i teach you not they learn from them you know because it's all part of the journey and yes. that's why i see men doing that they're given that opportunity and women aren't given that opportunity and the other thing i also realize is that i mean i see it quite a lot even from guys at an early age um there are this and i mean i i have to say it um i've had the opportunity of working in um in sports and have seen worked with a lot of boys schools and yes. a lot of times when i see boys schools you find um a lot of these guys you could find a guy in high school already has um, one of uh, the students of that school being a sponsor of that guy or being a mentor. You know, yes, the, the, yes. The, one of them could already be working, you know, at your large corporate companies. And yes. you see this connection. And I just wonder to myself, do girls ever get that? Um, do we have women in, in corporate who become sponsors for girls yes yes because yes. it's one thing to become a mentor but it's the other thing to become a sponsor like in rooms that yes. I cannot be in speak for me like you know saying yes. Nele yes. will do it um even if Nele at that moment she can't do it so I see men getting that quite a lot even from an early age so it helps them get enter into rooms that it takes a very long time for women to enter into Yes. Wow. I couldn't have put it any better. And, you know, there's a lot of research that backs this up, right, in terms of how women are often like overconfident and essentially the way they are, uh, their performance is measured is really just based on the potential, right, versus for women, it's really based on traction and, and, and a track record, but we're not given the benefit of that doubt to kind of build that track record, to kind of make mistakes along the way. And I think we see these trends not only in your corporates in terms of the way women progress up to C-suite level, but also in the startup ecosystem, right? In terms of taking those bets through actual checks and recognizing that sometimes startups do fail, right? And you get better at better the more 
um, leeway that you are given and the more patient capital that you're given to kind of really find a scalable business model, a scalable product. So I think it's it's very interesting and enlightening to kind of hear the perspective from you, right? And obviously um, you've built startups and you're currently running a venture-led startup. Um, so I think that's quite useful feedback. And before we get to discuss 3Demo, you know, this is your second venture. And before this, you ran a startup called IMED Tech Group. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how that came about um, and, and essentially, you know, what that was about and then what made you sort of uh, make the jump from that to, to, to 3Demo? Um, so I'm a tech where doing breast prosthetics for women who had um, lost um, their breast, um, who had undergone yeah. mastectomy and in eventually lost the breast. Um, so we are doing your low cost um, breast prosthetics because what we realized is that there wasn't a product in the market, uh, particularly for women, especially those from um, who can't afford breast prosthetics, who don't have medical aid to afford um, products, your high-end breast prosthetics that you find like Silima, Amuena. Um, yeah. So we, we started doing that. Um, and thing is, for me, when I, when I was starting, when I started the company, it, like, I'm a tech, um, was my, was my, what, uh, was was a, a learning curve for me uh, yeah. because when I started the company, I knew nothing about fundraising. I knew nothing about um, building a startup um, to yeah. an extent. To an extent that I mean, I could tell you a funny story. So um, I remember I, I was doing sales. I, I had people who were buying from me, but I I didn't know that one could raise funding when. Um, you have, I mean, you could have about 50 customers, you can raise funding, that's good enough traction. I didn't yes, know that, yes. you know, um, <laughs> yes. I, I didn't know that um, you, and a, a letter of intent is good enough for one to raise funding. I didn't know yes. that. I knew nothing about fundraising at all. I knew nothing about, you know, the world of venture capital investors I knew nothing about that I mean it took me a good uh, three years for me to ever know what it entails or even doing a pitch deck or anything the only thing I knew was to build a product and sell a product yes and yes. and I think me not knowing a lot um, and not having not surrounding myself with people who had um, successfully started startups, uh, raised funding, um, literally affected um, our company's trajectory because um, at some point we needed funding for us to grow, but I didn't have that funding. So I decided to, you know, let me take a pause on this company um, yes. and probably allow myself time to learn as much as possible. And yes. maybe I, I might be a better founder in my second startup. You know, um, usually they always say second time founder become better. Yes. Um, so yes. yeah, I guess, but I mean, it wow. hurts me how I made tech 10 out. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I look back at it and I think I could have done a better job if I could lead the company like as I am right now. I would have yes. done a better job on that company. Yes. 
than um, I, I did back then. Yes, but I think it speaks to, you know, what you said earlier, sort of that school fees that you pay, right? Um, and I think experience is the best teacher. So that's why I'm also one of those who are proponents for second time founders, um, because there's, there's so much that you gain, whether something succeeds or doesn't succeed from the experience of figuring out the complexities of launching a product, of managing customers, of starting to think about funding and budgeting and all yeah. those sorts of things that I think um, as long as you are intentional about consistently learning and consistently improving the way you manage yourself as a founder and then manage the set of resources towards that common goal, um, then I think, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile sort of school fees that you would have paid in, in sort of a prior venture, which, you know, obviously brings me to sort of 3D more which I'm super excited to talk about. And initially, obviously, this started as a sports tech company that would like leverage AI to help athletes improve injury prevention. I have a theory that obviously maybe this idea came from, you know, as you mentioned earlier, inspired by your background. You grew up in a very arts and sports-driven community. Yeah. But what's the real lowdown on sort of what inspired this idea um, and, 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 you know, sort of that first wave of what 3Demo was before the pivot? Okay, so what inspired the idea is that um, before I decided to say, you know what, I'm calling it quits um, with Ametech or putting it on pause. I always say I've put Ametech on pause uh, because yeah. you never know what the future uh, may maintain. Um, yeah. So I started doing some work in pre-surgical models. I was still doing some work in pre-surgical models because there were a few people that had said to me, um, because you know, um, additive manufacturing or 3D printing in the yes. medical sector, um, you could help orthopedic surgeons with pre-surgical models. So, I mean, I started building an interest because I mean, I, I've played sports before, I've dealt with injuries. And a lot of, um, I spoke to some few orthopedic surgeons um, that um, I, you know, you just reach out to. And yeah. I mean, some of them were telling me that a lot of um, the, the product would be great for elective surgeries and a lot of elective surgeries that they do are on sports athletes. Because thing about sports athletes is that um, when an athlete has an injury, you know, they do an elective surgery because, you know, they needed for them to get back on the field. Yes. Um, and, you know, I started saying that, what is the biggest cause? I started asking a lot of orthopedic surgeons, what is the biggest cause of injuries among sports athletes? And um, I mean, I started learning that a lot of injuries among sports athletes um, are, are based on overloading. So sometimes uh, we could be two people, um, you could find two athletes, but their bodies are structured differently. So yes. uh, one can run for 20 kilometers, the next athlete, if they try running for 20 kilometers, by the time they get to about 16 kilometers, um, from then on, they create overloading if they try to finish the next four kilometers. So. Okay how can we start uh, building a product that one identifies that moment when an athlete has excessive stresses on their body yes. that could trigger an injury. And we are then able to alert um, usually the performance um, manager 
at the team to say that, you know what, um, this athlete has been overtraining, there's excessive loading in their body that could cause injuries. Yes, wow, wow. Um, yeah, and I think you ran that for quite some time, right? And then you, you pivoted. Um, so could you please provide a short elevator pitch on what 3Demo is today and a little bit of background on, on why the pivot and obviously this opportunity that you tackle it now, what makes it so appealing? Yeah, so um, the thing is, people can see on our website, we're doing biometric identification, but what we are really doing right now is that, um, which we are going to a product we're launching on the 15th of May. Um, it's an online marketplace for the sale of livestock um, that is vetted using AI and precision analytics direct from any farm of any size. So what we're doing is that we are making it easy for farmers, especially smallholder farmers, uh, to be able to sell their livestock um, direct to the market. Um, and what we provide on our end is that we provide a software tool that one is able to create biometric identification of the animal linking an animal to a farmer. And second is able to provide insights of the health of that animal so that the person buying an animal from a farmer has a yeah. whole lot of insights of that animal, the health insights of that animal, ownership insights of that animal for us to build security in sales of livestock. Yes, yes. And, and would you say, obviously, the IP of the business lies in the technology that enables that vetting process for the livestock? Yes, yes. the IP is in the the technology that enables the vetting of um, the livestock. You know, funny enough, when we started, we were just providing biometric identification. And you know, when you are a startup, you start listening to your customers a lot more. And, you know, yeah. a lot of times we start, would go to farmers and farmers would say to us, you know, I love this product. Is it possible for, for this product to help us um, get to market? Is it possible for this product to help us get financing? And you know, when you start getting such questions from different farmers who are not even connected connected with each other, you start understanding yes. that a lot of these farmers are, are eagerly wanting to get a marketplace or they're eagerly wanting to get financing. So with yes. us, we, we said, if we can provide biometric identification, what stops, stops us from doing a marketplace um, so that we make it easy for farmers to start selling their produce, especially smallholder farmers, uh, because a lot of them don't have access to market, which is a yes. huge problem. Um, yes. That is why we see a lot of black farmers um, in South Africa, um, not going to become commercial farmers. Yes, yes, because they like that access to a marketplace, right? And yeah. I guess part of the reason why they, they like that access outside of information is how do you present sort of your set of commodities, or in this case, your livestock, in a way that becomes appealing commercially. Um, and your technology obviously then closes that barrier to enable yeah. them to, to compete uh, fairly in that marketplace, which I think it's it's quite fascinating and and, and brilliant, and I know that you know um, you you will still launch the marketplace component. Are you able to talk about the traction to date that you guys have been able to pull off in terms of you know from a numbers perspective, how many farmers have been able to kind of work with, um, and any sort of other interesting insights around traction? Okay, so. Um 
the nicest thing is we have um, over 540 farmers um, that oh, we've wow. been able, <laughs> yeah, in a short time. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, with the head size of uh, about 211,000, um, yeah, 211,000. Um, so, okay. I mean, it's, it's just been so interesting to see um, farmers' interest um, in um, our product. I mean, even before we had even launched identification, um, we had um, literally the first first version of the product was um, literally an online tool that allows farmers to sign up and in insert information of their farm. Yes. Farmers, farmers were in love with it because what it did is that a lot of the farmers um, were doing these things manually. So just yeah. having um, a tool that allows them to sign up somewhere, um, input information of the farm, um, we can get a database of how many farmers are at a particular um, location, what's their head size, how many bulls do they have, how many um, cows do they have, heifers, and everything, what breeds, of cattle do they have? It was just so interesting because um, those things help us be able to um, even help government understand farmers, um, how can they better support farmers because that data is so important. Yes, yes. And, and in terms of the way you guys think about your business model, right? Um, is it in that data and in future how that data could be used, as you mentioned, in terms of empowering finance solutions and empowering sort of, you know, the ability for them to compete in a marketplace that you guys own? So is that where you see that scalable business model? Yeah, so thing is, um, I mean, the marketplace has been our first step into saying how do we get farmers to compete? Um, yeah. I think the long-term vision that we want is um, for us to also get to a point where we also finance farmers um, ourselves, yes. maybe uh, because okay. what I've seen is that banks um, don't finance livestock farmers. Um, yes. They would either finance farmers, particularly commercial farmers, but then they finance assets like your tractors, um, yes. you know, farm assets, but they never finance farmers in terms of stock or anything. Uh, with us, um, long-term, I mean, if you have that data of um, the farmer, what animals they have, um, like at every given time, uh, how many animals they take to store, how much this farmer um, makes per month, per annum, we then be able to provide financing to, to farmers. And part of that financing to farmers is to say, it's also to say, how do we create a new model um, on vetting farmers for financing? Because I, I truly believe that the traditional models of, um, you know, when you vet someone to provide financing, uh, where you say uh, you, you you look at the historical track record of their accounts if they owe uh, or anything, um, I don't think it it quite works for farmers, especially for a yes. lot of um, black farmers, because for them to even start a fund, they get into so many debts. Yes, yes. Um. So we need to find a way on how to finance farmers that excludes um us um, looking at the um, debt record 
maybe let's uh, try looking at a way on their farm productivity because we are financing a business just like how uh, we finance startups right now. I mean, yes. w- when a VC finances a startup, I-, I-, I don't remember a VC saying to me, oh, bring your, um, I'm going to <laughs> bring a record of your accounts. Do you owe? Have you maxed out your credit card? <laughs> you know, we never get asked such questions. So why is it that um, we can do it for startups and yet for other businesses, we don't do it? Yes, yes. And that's a fair point. So essentially, you guys are building that infrastructure that allows an alternative credit model um, for, you know, smallholder farmers, obviously, particularly in the livestock space, to kind of be able to then access financing in order to grow, right, their business. And I think those models currently don't exist or there isn't enough data input to really refine and inform um, that credit decision making. So, I think that's that's a brilliant sort of vision in terms of where you guys are going. Um, and then the last question around traction is, can you just talk about, you know, um, obviously you guys launched in South Africa. Um, geographically, where are you guys thinking about expanding and, and also, you know, things around sort of that, that geographical expansion plan or targets? You know, the funny thing is we've gotten so many um, people from different countries who just uh, want us to get to the countries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we get people from Botswana who just say, come to Botswana, we get Uganda, we get Kenya, uh, we get Ethiopia. Um, We recently even got France. Um, I mean, even the French government is just um, so adamant to say, when are you coming to France? But um, for us, uh, we have um, chosen to, our expansion plan is to be in the US. And I mean, anyone could ask why the US? And it's something so important to me because um, in the US, if you look, um, the size and particularly in the US, we have, started um, looking, working with black farmers in the US uh, okay. because um, there is a huge problem that is happening in the US where the size of black farmers um, from 1920 to now has reduced from uh, 15%, now is now sitting at around 1%. Oh, wow. And you ask yourself that I come from a, a country where um, we have in 27 years of democracy, we have had um, the ability to promote black farmers and female farmers to get into livestock agriculture. And we've seen the numbers scale a lot. I mean, support through organizations such as Sonic Group um, that train farmers and at the end um, give them livestock. Um, the government yes. leases farms to farmers for like 30 years where farmers, that some of them pay like 4,000 per annum. And in the yes. US, we aren't seeing that from black farmers. We aren't even seeing young people, black young black people within farming. So I just said from we need to be in the US and find a way on how to optimize uh, black farmers businesses in the US for them to get to market. And the reason I say so is because in the next 10 years, the US market, the the US is going to be the biggest feeder of Africa. Um, you look at um, the amount of um, animal protein that um, our continent needs right now, 
as a yes. continent, we aren't able to produce that because we don't have the infrastructure for um, meat agro processing. Um, our biggest um, budget is going to be accessing food from outside, yes. particularly from big uh, big markets such as the US, Australia, Canada, um, Argentina, Brazil. So how do we prepare black farmers in the US to be able to feed Africa? Because yes. I mean, it, it's so important that when we talk about export from the US to Africa, that it's done by black farmers. I mean, yes. because that's the beginning of building generational wealth for black yes. people throughout the world. So that's why I went to the US and it's an important mission for me. Okay, wow. Um, and, 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 you know, in terms of being able to kind of finance the next wave of your business, I know that you recently closed the financing round in the wake of, you know, a lot of discussions around the difficulties of women, particularly in Africa, being able to, to access VC funding. Um, I think it's an incredible feat, the fact that you've been able to accomplish it. Could you talk us through a little bit more in terms of what that experience is like, um, how much you can, how much you raise to the extent that you can disclose uh, from and then also just three sort of key lessons that you took away from that fundraising process. Okay, so <laughs> I'm not supposed to disclose uh, from who because I uh, would have to disclose. Um, it can only be in September. Uh, okay, cool. But um, I mean, whew, the process was a pretty hard. <laughs> I don't yes. want to lie. Um, because thing is, um, there are so many things that um, investors in the US here don't know about Africa. Yes. Um, that part of fundraising also includes um, education. And yes. um, the one thing I would always tell any founder is to say, never take for granted that when you raise from an investor, the biggest job you have to do is educating the investor. Because especially if you are in a business that is uh, very niche, quite new, uh, people don't know about it. Um, you have to educate the investor. And second thing that one needs to know is that um, I remember Michael Siebel spoke about it in one interview um, that for black founders, uh, minority founders, is that there is a bar that has been set. Yes. And um, that bar will never go low um, for black founders, minority founders, it's just said that your job is to work so hard to go above that bar. And, you know, it means that for a, a female founder, you need to work 10 times harder than the hardest working guy in the room. Like I would okay. even say 100 times harder than the hardest working guy in the room. Um, you need to understand that um, fundraising, one thing I also learned is that fundraising is a relationships business. Um, yes. So you would get as much, um, you could have the most brilliant idea, um, you could have good traction, but at the end of the day is a relationship because at the early stage, the VCs, the investors that are bet on you are the people who are going to walk the journey with you. So you need to 
be able to show them that one, um, you are open to the relationship. Um, you need to show them that you can be trusted. Uh, you need to show them that um, you are someone they can build a relationship with because at the end of the day, a yes um, or a no, um, especially a yes is a, I always say it's a personal decision. Um, it's a human to human decision. Um, so you just need to understand that. And it's something I, yeah. I really, I really, really started understanding to say, Fundraising is really a, 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 a it's it's more of the, it's a personal decision at the end of the day. Investors um, look at you and say, do I love this person? Would I want to work with this person? Um, and yes. that's how you get a yes at the end of the day. And I mean, yeah. I've, I've been blessed to have not just, um, some are not investors, but just people who, um, have opened up to say, you know, if you need this for me, some people would give a free accommodation. Um, yes. Stay at my place for free. Um, and it's just one of those things that you start realizing that it, it builds trust. People invest in the people they trust. Yes. No, and, and, and that's, a, you know, 100% useful insight. I think one of the founders that I spoke to recently was sort of detailing how she's already having engagements with investors, even if they recently closed around. And she's like, because she's learned that, you know, when you are fundraising, when you need the money, it's a little bit too late, right? Yeah. Um, so it's about how do you consistently sort of nurture those relationships, consistently remain top of mind, um, consistently ensure that there's that mutual value exchange and I think the point that you mentioned around that education is where you know you are consistently sort of educating the investor on the market might not necessarily be in terms of investing in you particularly right but how they build up their acumen to qualify opportunities in your industry particularly in difficult industries like agriculture where there's so many nuances um, and yeah. so many complexities in terms of the way you scale a solution how do you consistently build that value exchange over time yeah. to the point where you know you want to kind of convert into an investment opportunity um they have enough trust that you would are the right team or the right person to kind of execute but you yeah. also right have qualified them in the process in terms of what value add they'd be able to provide in return when they now sits on your cap table and how much of a lever will that equity be in really scaling your business um so yeah so thank you so much for highlighting that point because i think it's something that people recognize too late when they have very little runway um, <laughs> and then they're like oh no we really need to close this round next month right when processes of such nature do tend to take time um and you know i i i, I just to start wrapping up and you know i'm so grateful we had this conversation and i know you sort of painted a picture of in the long term where you'd like 3 demo to be um what are some of the priorities in sort of the next couple of months and maybe even for 2021 um and what are sort of the opportunities that you're willing to explore with people that might want to partner with what you guys are doing or invest in 3 demo um can you talk about two to three priorities and then how people can get involved to support your journey. Okay, well, I don't mind people investing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, um, I mean, for us right now is, um, we fully focused on the product and making sure that we get the marketplace going 
right? Um, and I mean, we have targeted to uh, be able to reach about 30,000 seals um, by the end of um, our financial year, which is like March um, 2022. Okay. So that is our key priority. Um, I mean, the other thing is, um, I mean, one of our priorities is also to say, um, let's work with as many farmers as possible um, and how we can easily scale um, a farmer's businesses. You know, I, I always say, if I could add an extra thousand in a farmer's um, annual turnover, that would be so special because um, it's part of us building that relationship with farmers and making sure that they earn more from their businesses. We need to start making farmers uh, be the first people to eat on the table and not be the last people to eat on the table like the, it has been yes. happening uh, previously. So we've been fully focused on that. Um, and also raising funding as well. I, I truly believe that there's so much that we want to do as a company and um, we want to have as many people supporting us as possible. I know a lot of times as startups, we always focus on uh, the only person supporting us should be the people that um, give us funding. But I truly yeah. believe that um, there's so much opportunity for us to gain um, uh, people that walk the journey with us help us understand so many things about our business that um, we don't e easily look at. Um, because doing a marketplace, we're going into fintech, and um, one needs to have a lot of understanding of um, <laughs> strategies, fintech strategies. So we, that support is really quite important. Uh, because what I've always learned is that the mentors that you have are always the one of the people that lead you to the kind of investors that you have. Yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> so I, I, hence I always love to get my mentors to be the people that um, guide me into who, how, who are the right um, sort of investors do I talk to. Sometimes yes. they've always been the people that, um, open up the doors for me, uh, which is why I, I mean, I'm so for mentorship. I'm so for learning because um, it makes you a better person um, for your company at every stage of growth that the company is at. Yes. Wow, Nele. You know, when I, when I think about you as a person, but even just from our conversation, I think the quote that keeps ringing at the back of my mind is the one by Steve Jobs, you know, where he says that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Um, and I think just your journey in terms of how so many different facets of your life to your experiences have come together so meaningfully um, and manifest obviously in what you're building today and this large opportunity that you're tackling across the continent, if not globally. Um, I think it's so, so exciting. And Obviously, I can hear your passion. I think it will translate as well to anybody who's listening to this. So I just want to really thank you for your time and thank you for some of the insights that you have shared in this conversation. I have no doubt that it will inspire somebody that's listening to this, but also definitely I think there'll be a lot of interest in terms of how people can get involved in helping you really um, you know, achieve the things that you're accomplishing to or, or intending to achieve with Redemo. So I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this episode and yeah to everyone else if you want to learn more about 3D more or about Nele 
Um, I think you can contact her through LinkedIn and, and, and find out more about the organization on their website. Um, and that concludes our podcast today. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening and hope you enjoyed it.